I, I, before I, we get into what we're going to get into today in God's word, I, I do want to say, um, despite the fact that a kid's character was just on stage, today's message will not be uh, kid appropriate. All right. Um, I would say PG-13 would be the label I would give this. We're, we're going to dive into the things that Paul dives into in chapter five. So um, in a second, I'm going to pray. And you can use that as your opportunity to take your elementary or middle school student to the environment that we've created just for them, whether that's middle school ministry downstairs or children's ministry right over there. Unless, of course, you really want to have a really cool, awkward conversation in the minivan about <laughs> all those things, um, feel free to do that. But I just want to give you guys a little bit of an idea of where it's going to be. Obviously, I'm not going to do that in a place where it's intentionally crude or intentionally crass. We're just going to talk about God's word the way God's word talks about some real life things. All right. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get ready to dive in. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word leads us to the real life things that we actually experience and deal with and the things that cause us shame, the things that cause us pain in this life. The broken realities of human existence are not things to which your word can't provide wisdom, healing, and new life. Jesus, you tell us in your word to put off our old self and to put on our new self. A lot of things get lost in between there and there. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see what new looks like in you. In your name, amen. All right, guys, if you've got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter five. That's where we're gonna be, spend all of our time today. And uh, you're gonna need to buckle up today because we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're not gonna waste no more time. Ephesians five, I'm gonna read verses one through 17. One through 17, and yes, we're going to cover all that ground today. Um, Paul talks about very practical things, and honestly, guys, they don't need a whole lot of explanation. Like, we're just going to lean into them. We're going to see it kind of big picture stuff as opposed to getting all down in the weeds of it. We'll get in the weeds with some stuff. Um, some stuff you'll be wishing I would get out of the weeds and move on, but I won't. Um, let's read it together. Ephesians 5, this is the word of the Lord. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention, I loved hearing Bible pages turn right there, what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's the word of God. Now, there were three big themes there that Paul walks through, and they all have to do with that word, walk. 
This is Paul's favorite metaphor for what the Christian life is. It is a walk. And so the three things that he leans into there are kind of going to be the three overarching themes of what we're diving into. He talks about walking in love, walking in light, and then walking as the wise do. We're going to dive into those. But before we get there, I need you to kind of go back to understand that this isn't the first time in this letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul has mentioned this idea of walking. It's actually how he started kind of the hinge point verse of the entire letter. Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church in Ephesus who's trying to figure out what in the world has God done for us? And then in light of that, what in the world do we do here as not just people who are in Christ, but also people who are in Ephesus? We have real life things that are going on here on this planet that we live. So how in the world do we do this? And what Paul does is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he explains in chapters one, two, and three, here is what God has done. This is how he has saved you, redeemed you, predestined you for adoption. He created you for good works, prepared in advance for Christ. He has made available to you every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's done all of these things for you. This is who he is. And if you're in Christ, this is now who you are. And then he hits verse one of chapter four and says, okay, Now, here's what we do because of what God did. Here's what it means to be in Christ, chapters one, two, three, chapters four, five, six. Here's what it looks like, boots on the ground, to be in Christ in Ephesus. And so what does it mean for us to be in Christ in McDonough, in Christ in South Atlanta where we live? Paul's gonna walk through that here. He's gonna get into some very, very practical things. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, before I go and unpack all these things, because this, this message today is going to lean heavily into deeds, actions, things we don't do and things that we are supposed to do. Before we dive into that, I want to unpack and sit on this word worthy for just a second. Because I know in a room like this, the vast majority of us, whether right now or at some point in our life, have struggled with our own self-worth. We have felt like maybe we got that from a parent, maybe we got that from a spouse, maybe we got that from a boss. We have struggled with whether or not we truly are worthy. And one of the biggest burdens we can sometimes come under is wondering if I am worthy to God. And I feel unworthy of his love. I feel unworthy of his grace. I feel unworthy of what Jesus did on the cross. And so I want to take a second and tell you what worth is not and tell you what worth is. First of all, Paul is not saying, when he says, walk in a manner worthy, what he is not saying is that we become worth more to God if we follow his rules. See, today we're talking about works and deeds. So right from front, I need you to hear this loud and clear. God doesn't determine your worth by your works. God does not determine your worth by your works. If he did, you would be worth nothing. Lean in here because there is no good work you and I can do that would mean anything to God. Isaiah 46 says, our righteousness is as filthy rags before the righteousness of God. To translate that in a way, maybe it makes you understand it a little bit better. That means your absolute best attempt at works-based or deeds-based righteousness before God is equal to you offering him used toilet paper. It's disgusting, it's useless, it stinks, and it's worthless. And that's the vile image that he wanted to display when he said what he said in Isaiah 46. It's as filthy rags. You cannot be righteous by your own deeds, by your own works. So if works doesn't make me worthy, what makes me worthy? Where does my worth come from? It doesn't come from your intrinsic value. 
There is none. Your worth comes from what someone was willing to pay for you. And for some reason, guys, for some reason, far beyond all human reasoning, God the Father was actually willing to purchase us, to pay the price for us, and the cost for us was Christ because our price tag was perfection. And that was a price that only Jesus could pay, his perfection for our redemption. So what this means is, and this is the goodness of the gospel, don't miss this. It means that your worth comes not from what you can do, but your worth comes from what has been done for you. Now, our call is to walk in a way that shows the world, shows the whole rest of the world, how much Jesus is actually worth. That's a worthy walk. It's no longer this walk where I'm making this vain attempt to try to prove my worth with my body or my bank account or my brains. No, I'm not walking towards worth. I'm walking in worth because I'm in Christ. That's what it means to be worthy. It means now I spend every waking moment of my life to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It means that I do everything with my life to show the world how worthy Jesus was. How worthy of surrender he is. How worthy of obedience he is. How worthy of affection he is. How worthy of trust he is. How worthy of surrender he is. That is a walk worthy because it shows how worthy Jesus is. So with that in mind, Let's see how Paul uses this metaphor of walk to be able to navigate us through this. The breakdown of how this is going to go is 1 through 7 is where he leans into walk in love. Verses 8 through 14 is where he talks about walk in light. And walk in wisdom is 15 through 21. Got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dig in. First of all, he talks about walking in love. This is verses 1 through 7. We leaned into a lot of this last week. If you missed last week, please, please go back and lean into that. I'll sum it up the best I can. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To sum this up as best I can, it says, we're not trying to imitate God. We're not trying to walk the way that God walks to do what God does to live our lives here. We're not trying to imitate that as people who are trying to get the approval of God, who are trying to get a worth of God to get his affection. We're doing those things. We're imitating God because we're children who already have them. We've been brought into the family. Jesus made a way for us to be in this family. And then he redefines love totally. He talks to this church in Ephesus and talks to the church here in McDonough. And he says, listen, you thought you knew what love was. And you thought love was that warm, tingly feeling you get on a first date. That's not love. That's probably more lust. That's maybe even more infatuation. Love is this. Love is laying down your life. There is no such thing as love anymore that is not self-sacrificial. If there is no sacrifice, there is no love. That's the point he's making to them. He says, walk in love. And what that means is you're like Jesus, laying down your life to serve, care, and meet the needs of other people. That's what it means to walk in love. To walk in love is to walk in a manner where you are self-sacrificing. Now, what Paul does, and this is how we can understand why in the world he would make a transition like this. Walk in love as Christ loved you and lays his life down for you. Fragrant offering before God. Dun, 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 dun. But sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as improper among saints. How can he make that hard turn? He makes that hard turn. And the reason he does it is because he's trying to get people to understand what the opposite of self-sacrifice is. 
The opposite of self-sacrifice is self-indulgence. And he knows for the church in Ephesus and maybe even the church in McDonough in America that the place we'll go to be most self-indulgent is sex and money. Am I off? No. He's doing what the Spirit leads him to because he knows the broken, fallen human condition. That one of the very things that keeps us from self-sacrificing is the, know, the knowledge that we want self-pleasure. That what we want to make sure that all our needs are met is the primary reason that I don't meet anybody else's need. My greed is rooted in me making sure that I have what I need. So he leans in heavy here. He says, okay, I'm going to tell you what your life can't be defined by anymore. Our life is now defined by self-sacrificing love. So that means it cannot, from this moment forward, be defined as self-serving and self-indulgent lust. So he says, sexual morality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named. Let's talk about these two words right here of sexual morality and impurity. This term of sexual morality, anytime you see this show up in the gospels, this is a catch-all phrase that Paul and other gospel writers use to kind of encompass all the filth that is sexual sin. Oftentimes it's a, a Greek word used there that's the word porneia. It's where we get our word for pornography. This sexual morality is a kind of catch-all definition, the best simple definition I can give for you around that and what the Bible means in that word pernea is it is any sexual expression outside of the Genesis chapter two ideal. And that ideal is one man, one woman in the context of marriage forever. So to make that really clear, because some of you are going, okay, that's what it is. Well, tell me what it isn't. You're, maybe you're not saying that, but... I'll let you know it anyway. Let's make things super awkward. Anything that's outside of the Genesis 2 ideal includes these things. Pornography, cohabitation outside of marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex relationships, polygamy, polyamory, lustful masturbation, and adultery. And maybe you're one of the younger people in the room saying, oh, well, we, you know, we did everything but have sex before we got married. Well, that's pornea as well. It includes that. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the emotional fantasizing. It's seeing that thing on TV and wishing that your husband would treat you the way the guy on This Is Us treats you. All of that is porneia. It's objectifying women. It's living in a way and making your life centered around sexualification to be sexy. Porneia. And so you're like, man, we're all in uh, the weeds of life and you may be wondering why in the world would Paul go here first? Like he says, he goes straight from walk in love as Christ, you know, gave himself up and laid his life down for you. Why would Paul talking to the Ephesian church? Why would he lean into this so strong? Why would he go here so heavy? Why would he do this? Well, you need to understand the context of what Paul, who Paul was writing to. The church in Ephesus is, Ephesus is in modern day Turkey, but the church in Ephesus was the central point of worship for the Greek goddess Diana. That was kind of their state religion, if you will. The same way that the Vatican is kind of the holy city for Catholicism, Ephesus was the holy city for worship of this Greek fertility goddess, Diana or Artemis. The Greeks and the Athenians called her different things, but that's, well, I'll, I'll, for the sake of just sticking to one, I'll call her Artemis. 
So they worship Artemis. This is actually kind of what led to the church getting started. As Paul shows up there in Ephesus, three years before he writes this letter, he shows up and he starts preaching the gospel to them. So much so that they realize that this little silver God figurine that they have in their pocket of this fertility goddess Artemis is not a true God at all. And they realize that Jesus is truly God and Jesus gave their li- his life for them. And they begin to, 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 to get rid of these idols that they have for this Greek goddess Artemis. So much so that it puts a dent in the economy of the idol makers themselves. The silversmith throw an outrageous uh, revolt against Paul, wanting to get Paul killed. And that's kind of the persecution that starts the church in Ephesus. That Paul ends up writing this letter that we spent the last entire year diving in through. So don't think that adversity can't lead to some amazing things. But this culture that they were in, and we think our culture is crazy. This culture that Paul is writing to, and again, no second generation Christians. Every, like, it would basically be like if everybody in this room, a bunch of grown-ups, came to Christ. In the city of Ephesus, because it is the holy city to this fertility goddess Artemis, once a year there was these giant parties and festivals, week-long festivals thrown to celebrate her. And it was a renewal ceremony. So what the people would do is they would take their idols, their little silver idols, and they would go down to the water and they would wash them off, symbolizing repurification, revirgining, if you will, their Greek little silver figurine that was their fertility goddess. And then after they had made their little goddess pure, they would go back into the temples and into the streets and into the city. And again, when you worship a fertility goddess to become one in spirit with a fertility goddess, you have to have sex. And there, right there in the temple, right out in the open, right there for everybody are the temple prostitutes so that you can become one with your fertility goddess. That's the culture he's writing to. And we think ours is crazy. It was crazy out in the open. You get patted on the back. Hey, did you, do, you go by the temple today, big man? You know the way, way we wear those I voted shirts, or, or I voted stickers? You know, they had their different stickers, you know? It was something you'd be proud of. Because again, that's their God. And Paul's writing to men and women who have experienced years. I mean, like some of them had had their like, 17th, 18th, 19th anniversary of sex fest every year when it came around. And now Paul's writing to them and they have baggage, folks. They've got, they've got history of sin. They remember what the girl last year at the temple looks like. And Paul's writing to these people and I believe he's writing with courage. He's writing with power because he knows and he believes that the Holy Spirit can actually do what he's telling them it can do. That that really was your old life. And I don't believe Paul's writing this going, man, I really hope that they get this. And I really, man, they've had a lot of sexual baggage. They've had a lot of sexual sin. I really hope they can do this. Paul's writing with boldness and confidence to know. And you should take some confidence in this too. He's writing to them with boldness and confidence to say there is no amount of years. There is no amount of intensity. There is nothing that is so filthy, wicked, and vile that is a sinful sexual act that our God can't heal, redeem, and restore for his glory. That's the point he's trying to make because he's writing to a culture that is just as wicked, just as jacked up, and just as vile as ours. And that's why Paul says, he says, there can't even be a hint of this in your life. You can't have any of this anymore. He's saying, you abstain from the festival. I feel like people are like even nervous to have silver in their house anymore. Like, man, we don't even want silver up in our house. Like, we get everything out. He's saying, get it all away. This is, he's saying, this is not proper among you. Now, 
Sexual morality, impurity, these are kind of, most of the time when Paul talks about these things, he's talking about them in together. But then he goes here to covetousness, which is greed. Some of your Bible translations put that as greed. So you got sex and greed, to which, you know, when we were talking about all the sex stuff, all the conservatives in the room, they're like, yeah, talk about all that sex. You know, these people sleeping around, doing all this bad stuff, you know, get them. And now we start talking about greed, and all the liberals in the room are like, yeah, okay, talk to them greedy, uh, you know, conservatives, let's get this. I love how the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It just gets everybody. It'll get you, which is, the, which is kind of the point. Don't look at Jesus through the filter of your party. Look at Jesus for Jesus. Find the truth that's in Jesus. And then you'll see Jesus. And then you'll know what to do, how to vote, all those other types of things. So he comes here and he says, okay, let's talk about this. You're going to stumble into the sexual impurity side of things. We got to get rid of that. We can't do that anymore. But then he goes to greed. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Covetousness is greed. It's rooted in this, this heart cry that goes, I want to make sure I got enough. And so I'm going to reach, and I'm going to grab, and I'm going to long to pull in more to make sure I have enough. Now, for us in the church, we're, greed is one of those things that's really hard to see in the mirror. All right? Because we always think, who's greedy? That guy over there. <laughs> that family over there. Well, that, that's just too much. And that's usually the way we frame it, right? Oh, that's just too much. They, okay, a Toyota would get them there. They don't got to have that. Okay? What do you need five bedrooms for? They only got two people in the house. That's too much. You know what's crazy? When it comes to greed is and covetousness and, and longing for more than we actually need, we all go, I just need enough. And if you ask thousands heirs, millionaires, billionaires, how much is enough money, they'll all tell you the same thing. Just a little more. The point that Paul is making here is it's okay to ask the question, how much is enough? The problem is who we've let answer that question. Track with me here. It's a good thing to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to sit down and look at your family budget, to look at your expenses, to look at the things that you purchase, to look at the amount of money you give away and go, how much is enough? The problem is, guys, we ask the question to ourselves and we answer the question to ourselves. And you're a bad person to answer that question. Because you can't hold you accountable. And so to find out how we are actually supposed to do this thing that is protecting our Christian walk against greed and this desire to get more than we actually need, the way we solve this is we don't let ourselves answer the question, how much is enough? We let the needs of the church answer how much is enough. We let the needs of the world around us answer how much is enough. Because go back and think about the church in Acts. There were wealthy people who were coming to Christ as the Holy Spirit was breaking out in Jerusalem. And you go back and you read Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. What you see is these wealthy people are selling off land. They're selling off houses. They're selling off these things. And they're giving as the needs come up. So what they're doing is they're not sitting there with their you know, calculator going, well, how much is a, well, a right family budget for us here in this new thing that is the church of Christ? No, they're determining what they need by the needs of the church family. And this is why, if you're just like out there disjointed, not really connected to church, you are in grave danger of being greedy and covetous to the place that it's sinful because you're not ingrained and plugged into the church enough to actually know what the needs within the church and around the city actually are. Because it is those needs that we're supposed to hold you accountable so that when you bump into those needs, you go, okay, well, I'm going to give that. You bump into that, bump into that need and you go, I'll sell the third car. You bump into that need and go, who needs jet skis anyway? You know, like, I don't need these. You know, and you give away. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this lust, this lust is an over-desire. You can, lust isn't just a sex thing. Lust is an over-desire for anything. You can lust after a marriage. You can lust, lust after a brand new pair of shoes. You can lust after all sorts of things. It's an over-desire that usually takes something from being a good thing that you actually need to becoming a, a little G God thing for you that you've made the source of your actual happiness. He goes on from here in verse four. And he says, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. These are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So he's kind of picking up on, he's saying, okay, we're not gonna be, not only are we not gonna be sexually impure, not are we gonna be greedy, but we're not even going to make coarse, filthy, silly jokes about these things and be crude about these things because that's out of place. That's not proper. That's not who we are anymore. The same way that it would be really weird if I um, showed up at church and I, I started trying to preach to you guys in a leotard. You're like, that's out of place. That's improper. That's, that's not what you should put on to do what you're doing. He's saying, when you as a Christian, when you put on these crude jokes, when you put on this humor, when you put on this filthy greed, he's saying that's like the same example of, of showing up and you just look out of place. That doesn't fit with who you are anymore. Now, you may see this, and this, you, this, this is unique to try to make the connection here. Okay, so he says, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. They're out of place, but instead there be thanksgiving? We're talking about Thanksgiving? What do, you, what do we mean there? How does, how does this replace these three things? Anybody else kind of read that and you're like, hmm, how does Thanksgiving do this? How does that solve my desire to when all the buddies around the water cooler are making a coarse joke about the show they watched or, or, or everybody's trying to one-up each other with your mama jokes? How does thankfulness somehow solve this problem? Here's how I think, and this is what I believe Paul is trying to get out of here. So again, this all goes back to your identity and understand what God has done for you and that you're his child. I'm just gonna speak from my own personal experience right here. The times, and I've struggled with this. I grew up in a locker room. I feel like I grew up with parents who didn't go to church. Somebody, I was at a funeral recently and they sang Jesus loves all the little children. And I was like, how did y'all all know that song? And they were like, well, we sang it at church. And I was like, that's why I don't know the song. Uh, I didn't go to start church, going to church until I was uh, in eighth grade. And, and at that point, we weren't singing Jesus Loves All the Little Children. I missed everything that happens in children's ministry. I struggle with this. Filthy talk, foolish crew joking. They're totally out of place. But let me tell you the reason I did those things. I did those things because I was insecure in who I was. I thought to get the approval of the other guys that I was around, I needed to tell the same jokes that they were telling. I, I didn't know who I was in Christ. I didn't know that he had already saved me, redeemed me, that I was a child of God and Jesus was gonna show me what it looks like to be a real man, not the men that I'm around. And so out of an insecurity, I said things, did things, referenced things in order to gain approval and acceptance from the people I was around. That's why in a second, Paul's gonna say, don't be partners with them. It's as if he's saying, you shouldn't desire any longer, guys, to fit in in the places where these are the norm, where people just go, oh, that's a high school locker room. I kinda know what goes on in there. Oh, that's, that's a, uh, forgive me if you sell used cars. Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the place where the, the, the used car, you know, those guys, you know, that's that out there. He's going, no, 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 no. 
I may do some, I may go to a locker room. I may be a used car salesman. I may be in sales or I may be someone who's a X, Y, Z, you fill in the blanks. But that's not what defines me. What defines me is how secure I am in Christ. And I know that I don't have to say those things because I'm no longer living for your approval and your acceptance. So that's not proper for me to do anymore because Jesus gave his life for me so that I would have new life. I don't have to share these things. I don't even have to watch these things anymore so that I don't feel like I'm left out when everybody else at work is talking about these different things. He's saying, this is, this is where Thanksgiving comes into play. And this is how it makes up for these things. When I really understand who I am in Christ and what Christ has done for me, the things I talk about are, dang, you guys remember how sinful and jacked up and wicked I used to be? Man, I'm so thankful that I don't do that anymore. I'm so thankful. Man, I'm so thankful that my wife took me back after all the stupid stuff I did. How dare I objectify and go back and look at all this. Man, I'm so thankful for what he's saying. This is how Thanksgiving replaces this because when you truly see the death that you've been forgiven by Jesus, you cannot help but be thankful in such a way that now instead of talking about crude jokes and your mama and everything else, now the words you say are, man, I cannot believe what Jesus has done for me. I dare shudder to think about the person I would be had he not saved me. My boys, man, they're going to be walking with Jesus for the rest of their life because of how Jesus saved me, the debt that he paid for me. I cannot imagine. And man, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you guys how he gives me strength in the midst of temptation. I don't even know the things that he's holding back from me, but I know he's holding stuff back from me because I have bad days. And these are the things he's saying. When you begin to understand your identity in Christ, the debt he has paid you, you cannot help but the things you say be full of thanksgiving. He said, this is what we replace, all these stupid jokes and, and everything else we talk about. And he gets from there and he kind of allows a hammer to come down here. He says, be sure of this, which is like, take it to the bank, get it tattooed. This is for real, for real. Be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. I've been to a lot of you Southern women's house and I've never seen this on a wall. But this is heavy. Now, for some of you are hearing this and, and you're thinking, I've done some of those things. Does that mean what it, I think it means for me? You gotta understand something here. Paul, Paul is writing to people who are in Christ. He's writing to saved, redeemed, restored, adopted people. But he is still giving them a stern, harsh warning. He's saying, this is not who you are anymore. He said, I, be sure of this, that God does not take these things lightly. Any of these people, they are not getting this inheritance from God. They're, they are idolaters. And this is, this is the reason you cannot get a God inheritance if you worship a different God. So when he walks through these things and says, everybody who's doing these things and living, this what we talk about here is anybody who is not saying anybody who's ever done one of these things one time or anybody even who is 
gotten saved, accepted Christ, surrendered their life to him, been baptized, and then struggled with greed or had a bad sexual thought or had a bad sexual action or even had a broken marriage that was redeemed and restored. He's not saying that that person is still destined for hell. What he is saying is that when you live a life that is defined, marked, and you put your flag into sand that says, Jesus, you cannot have your way with my life in this area, whether that's money or sex, then he's saying you are in grave, grave danger. And the connection here is in this word, idolater, to this word, kingdom. Because in my sexual immorality, in my impure thoughts, in my covetousness, all of these things are fruit when the root is really idolatry. I'm looking to sex to truly give me what I can only get from God. I'm looking for money and the power or comfort or approval that comes from it to truly give me things that only could come from God. And what God says here is in um, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 24. He says, God gave them up, gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of the bodies of one another. See, this is how you can understand what he says in verse six and seven. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things, and that these things are the six things that he listed up there, of sexual morality, impurity, uh, covet, coveting, and uh, the impure, coarse joking, all those things. That's what he's saying. He said, against these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, therefore, don't be partners with them. Now, this wrath of God, like I said, this is not God just going, I just want to punish you because you made me look bad. I just want to punish you because you're stupid and, and you don't believe that I'm a really good God. No, God's wrath is God going, I see the God you want more than me. And I'll let you have it. You don't want me. That's what's so wild about our God. Is he's not going to twist your arm, break your finger to make you serve and worship him. He says, if you want sexual sin, if that fire that burns in you for lustful cravings, if that's what you want to continue to follow, I will honor your decision and I will let you go. If you want to build an empire of wealth and deny the most blatant, obvious command over and over and over again in scripture to care for the needs of the poor, to give sacrificially, if you want to ignore all of that, and just continue to, to be greedy with what I've given you. I'll let you serve that God of money. And I'll give you over to it. And you'll die penniless. And fatherless. That's his wrath. His wrath is letting sin be what sin is to you. And not, giving this, and not allowing you to truly see the Savior for who he is. But it's not because he blinded your eyes. It's because you chose to keep them closed. Say, I'm not going to see you. I don't want to see you. And the reason he tells this to a church is because he knows. And this is why he goes here. He says, don't let anybody deceive you with stupid false words. Because Paul knows what I know and what you've experienced in church. That after Paul leaves and after Paul dies, you know what's going to show up? Some guys that show up on the scene go like, listen. Hey, man, if y'all want to go to Sex Fest, you know, the next one that comes around here, y'all can go, you know, go love your neighbor there. You know, do you really need to sell all that? Man, like if you really want to figure out how good grace is, just sin a little more. There's no way they, they'll say the guys will come on the scene. They'll say things like this. And this is, you know, this you can go to 
probably some churches in our city, definitely some churches in Atlanta, definitely some churches in our country that will say things like, you know what? At the end of the day, God loves everybody. And his love overcomes your sin. And a loving God would never send someone to hell. A loving God would never allow his wrath to come on them. So in the end, love wins. And, and Paul says, hey, don't let anybody lull you to sleep with words like that. You're not a son of disobedience. You're a son of God. You've been brought into this brand new family. Live like you're a part of this family. Th that's why he says, don't become partners with them. Don't, 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 don't associate yourself with them. Don't long to be associated with them. You are something different. You are odd. You are holy. You are called out. You are redeemed and righteous. So live differently. He goes on from there, and this is the point I, I would make on this, is like, he's saying that we can't say that we love. He's saying this to the church, and I, if I had to paraphrase what he just got through saying, I, he's saying, we can't say that we love, and love is defined by surrender, trust, and faith. We cannot say that we love Jesus if we are still openly and actively pursuing the things that put him on the cross. So if I'm actively pursuing just getting more money for the sake of me getting more power, more approval, more claim, living this big, nice, comfortable life, I can't say that I love Jesus and continue to live in the greed that he died for. I can't say that I love Jesus and I'm still actively pursuing not putting up any safeguards, not you know, doctoring and making sure of my screen time. I'm still you know, scheduling meetings with a really cute assistant you know, off-site. I'm still going and, and going on long-term business trips and, and not really having any sort of accountability. He's saying if you are actively going into that, if you're intentionally pursuing those things, your words do not match your faith. You're a liar. And you may be able to deceive yourself, but God is not. He knows that your heart has not surrendered. Your words are right, but your heart is not. And this is why he's, he's heavy on this. This is why he says these words to the church to the people, because he knows that false prophets, false teachers, and even our own wicked desires is, is going to be to make peace with sin instead of actively try to kill every ounce of it that is left in our lives. He knows that about us. And the key here is not, will you fall down? Will you make these mistakes? Yes. Everybody in this room, you live in America. You're going to struggle with greed. Everybody in this room, you live in America. You're going to struggle with bad sexual thoughts. Every man in this room, you could pluck your eyes out. You could cut your hands off. You could do whatever you want to do to mutilate your flesh. Jesus gave this metaphor and analogy. He said, you could do all that. You know what you're still going to do? You're still going to struggle with lust. He says, you can either get knocked down and stay down or I believe you can do what a righteous person does. And though he falls seven times, you can rise again. And maybe you don't hear anything else I'm saying to you today. I think God sent me here to tell some of you, rise again. Rise again. Rise up, man. Yes, sin got you knocked down. Yes, it punched you in the face. Yes, you feel a lot of shame right now. Rise back up. There's, listen, there's resurrection power inside of you. Jesus rose from the day grave and he is inside of you. So friend, listen, you can rise back up. It's not about, are you gonna get knocked down again? Yes. Are you gonna take some more arrows? Yes, rise up. This is where as Christians, again, man, we gotta have a little bit more of a chip on our shoulder to realize that the, the end has been won. It is over. It is finished. And so like, are we gonna take some L's here? For sure. Get your butt back up. Move on. 
It's so, like, and again, like, as a younger Christian, I struggle with this. You get hit and you feel like, oh, it goes back to what I talked about last week about time healing all wounds. And I think, oh, I wounded myself. The Bible makes this very clear. Track with me on this. When you sin, you sin against your own flesh. You commit a wound against yourself when you sin sexually. And so we think, oh, I got to get some time to let that wound heal. And I'll start reading my Bible a little bit more. And I'll start praying. But right now, dad's mad. What the problem is, is you're coming to your relationship with your heavenly father the same way you used to come to your relationship with your dad. You get in trouble at school. Mom be the first to figure out. She say what? Wait till your daddy gets home. And man, you never prayed before. Daddy gets stuck in traffic. God, just let him get stuck in traffic. Just let him have some bad stuff going on at work. He's got to deal with, you know, just praying for your own backside, man. Because you don't want to encounter the father in your sin. But I'm telling you, look at me in my eyes when I tell you this. Your father, heavenly father, is not like your earthly father. Our, our, our continence has to change when we sin from, oh, I messed up. Nobody tell dad to I messed up. Where's dad? I got to find him. I got to talk to you. We got to get this thing right. I got to get some protection in this area. I got to get some healing in this area. I, I got to go, go find dad so that we can work this out. So I can figure out what deficiency was I trying to meet that I didn't realize he had already met in me. I go and I sin and then I go back to him again. I go and I sin, and I go back to him again. You, he said, look, it says, though the righteous. And if you're in Christ, friend, that's you. He says, the righteous falls seven times. You know, seven's the number of completeness in the Bible. And that's how some of you feel. Like, I am a complete failure. I have completely fallen. <laughs> he says, no, you haven't. Stand up. There's resurrection power in you. If Jesus is in you, there's resurrection power. You can stand back up. When you stand back up, that's when we start to walk in light. That's the next part. He says, for one time you were in darkness. That was when you were tripping over your own feet. That's when you couldn't see what you were doing. You were in darkness. He didn't just say you were in. He said you were. It's like that is actually your identity. You're all dark. But now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. What Paul is doing here is he's referencing back to Jesus and who Jesus was and who Jesus claimed to be and who Jesus is now for us. He's actually pulling off of Jesus' quote in John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he's saying here is we take our relationship with Jesus. We take this love of Jesus. Even now, we take the scripture and we allow this to be what illuminates our life so we can see what steps to take. This is what gives us our P's and Q's so that we're not in this dark blindness. I don't, I'm just going to pretend like God's not here. Mode of living. It's going, no, I want to see God everywhere I can see him. I want to see the truth everywhere I can see it. Verse 10 and 11, he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Key words there, pleasing to the Lord. You want to learn how to fight against the flesh that longs for pleasure? Is seek to live with your flesh, with your finances, with every aspect of your life, to live a life where you please God. I'm not about my pleasure anymore. Again, track with me. We serve a guy who was crucified. What makes us think, like, we're just going to have all this pleasure down here, man? That's, that's the culture. That's not Christ. In this life, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome it. Embrace the pain. Find the joy in it. Know that there's glory in it. It's coming. It's unavoidable. To love is to suffer. To love is to sacrifice. It's part of life. 
He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Like we don't live in the dark anymore. We don't take part in those things that just make darkness perpetuated. We live in the light. Instead, he says, expose them. Now, let's be careful here, all right? Because some of you, like when I get up and I start talking about sexual morality and, you know, masturbation, all these other types of things, you're like, yeah, expose all that. Let's, tell, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Well, the pastor did a great job exposing all that darkness today. I didn't expose the darkness. I just solidified our opinions, okay? That's all I did. We all pretty much, for the most part, you know what we do? We all kind of agree on all those things. Exposing the darkness means that I handle dark situations and people who are walking in the dark, it means I handle it in the way that Jesus does, which means I don't pick it out in front of their thing, saying, God hates you. You're going to die. Like you're go- you will burn because of this. I expose the darkness. You want to see how to do this? Go read the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. That's how you expose darkness. You want to see how Jesus exposes darkness? Go look at the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You want to see how Jesus exposes darkness? Go look at the story of Jesus and the tax collector. That's how Jesus exposes darkness. He walks into them. He tells them fully the truth, but he does it in love. And again, this is a hard tension to manage because some of us want to be all truth and some of us want to be all love. But he says, our job, our call is to walk in truth so much that we're just like walking light bulbs. And when people are close to us, man, they go, oof, I see the way they just handled conflict in their family. And we ain't never done something like that. They see you guys, they go, hey, um, how was Christmas for your kids? And you say, well, this year we, you know, we, 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 we've done a lot of toys and everything else. And, you know, this year we, we just try to give to the family. And there was a need that we learned about from our church. And, and that was what we did. And we, we tried to make it a, a teaching moment for our kids and everything else. And that coworker's like, can you give me a list about that? Like, how did that go? They're going, oh man, you're, you're, again, this is how we expose the darkness of greed in their life. It's not by you going and, 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 and taking a flashlight on all their sins and all their mess and going, hey, do you see all this? You got all, you, you want to, you know, can I put it under a microscope too? I got some light on it. That's not it. He's saying, I want you to see, I expose darkness by letting people see the light of Christ in me. Because that's who I'm most accountable for. Because you know what they think, again, you, some of you have been on the other side of this, so you know what I'm talking about here. When, when I go and I start shining all of the light onto their, if that's, what I, if that's my mode of operating, if I just go shine all the light on your sins, do you know what that person is now really after? Catching me in the same thing. Seeing me do it. And some of you have known that. You call somebody out in their sin, they go, well, well I know what you, you know, you've been there. Because the, the most natural form of admitting the guilt is to deflect that guilt and to find fault in somebody else. And now you just create an argument, not a convert. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, okay, we're going to expose these things. But the way that we expose them is by walking in the light. You're a child of the light, which means the light is with you everywhere your feet go. So just be the light. Walk in faith. Walk in truth. Walk out of dark situations when they get too dark for you. Walk out of a movie theater. Turn the show off when it gets too dark. If you struggle with what is that, ask, get help, find wise counsel. This is what he's calling it, this life that is in the light. He says, it is even shameful to speak about the things that they do in the secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it then becomes visible. He's saying, eventually, everything that's done in the darkness is going to be brought to the light. 
And then he gives what I think is his plea that helps us see how we're actually supposed to deal and call and lean into people so that the love of Christ gets into their life. He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. He says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I believe what he's after here is saying, there's got to be this heart cry in us that sees the brokenness, that sees the darkness, that sees the sexual morality and purity and covetousness and greed and all sorts of manifestations of sin in other people's lives. And heart breaks because we see someone sleepwalking into hell that goes, wake up, friend. Friend, I wish you would wake up. I wish you would see this. I wish you could see who you really are in Christ. Young woman, wake up. Young sir, please wake up. Wake up. Wake up, oh sleeper. And let the light of Christ shine on you. It's this heart cry that realizes that the vast majority of people on our planet are living in a coma of sin. Dead and don't know it. Asleep and don't realize. He's saying, wake up, oh sleeper. Wake up. And there's got to be this heart cry of evangelism for his church to realize that part of our call, a part of our commission is to wake the dead, to wake the dead and let the light of Christ be what does it in us and through us. From here, he goes on and he talks about walking in wisdom. Can't spend a ton of time here, but he says, look carefully then how you walk. This is really the combination of if I'm walking in love and I'm walking in light, then wisdom is going to manifest itself out through my life. He said, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We're saying walk as a wise person would walk. What does a wise person do? Key word here, makes the best use of the time. We are in culture who are inventing new ways to waste time. Like this is, we are Olympic time wasters, okay? He's saying, the way you know the gospel has really impacted your life is you live with a divine sense of urgency. I met some people at this church that embody this, man. They're the, they're the church people. Um, Diana Clyde is one that comes to my mind. People who I'm having to rein in. I'm like, go rein you back in. You know, uh, I, there's a few of these people that, that, that I immediately come to mind that I, that I love. I would much rather have to rein people in than kick people in the butt as a pastor. All right? You, same thing for those of you who are managers at work. Do you want the employee who, who's just fired up, ready to get after it, and you're having to go, okay, well, let's dial that in. Let's come on, dial it in. Or do you want the employee that's just waiting for you to come by and tell them every little thing exactly how they need to do it? No, you want the person who you don't have to kick in the butt. You want the person you have to pull in a little bit. And God's saying, I, I would rather you make aggressive mistakes out of a God-given sense of urgency than you sit on your hands and wait for something to do it for you. So he says, make the most of the time. Live with this divine sense of urgency that realizes three things. You want to live with a divine sense of urgency? Realize three things. One, you have a divine calling on your life. It is not optional for you to go and share the gospel with people. It's not optional for you to be part of a local church. It's not optional. There's a divine calling on you to go into all the world and make disciples. Secondly, you have a for sure outside opposition in Satan who's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy everything good in this world. And three, you have limited time. There's going to come a time where Jesus is going to split the sky open. He's going to bring heaven to earth. And he's going to renew all this. And he's going to come. When he was here on earth, you know what he was? He was peace. He was a lamb. He was a shepherd. But when he comes back, he is not going to be in a robe that is just nice and white and just clean and everything. The Bible says he's coming back in a robe dripped in blood. He's got a tattoo down his side. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. When he comes back, he comes back not as peaceful, want to bring everybody in. He comes back as judge. to whether or not you accepted what he did for you or not. And if you did what he did for you, you would have every right to come back as judge and to judge as severe as you needed to if you went to the severe lengths 
for your salvation that he did only to have you reject it or only to have a friend reject it, a family member reject it. So he says, make the most use of your time. Wisdom is this, it's thinking clear about things that are unclear. Guys, there's a lot of things in the Bible that give you clear directions, but stuff like, who do I marry? When do I get married? What job should I take? Should we move? Should we not? Should we invest in this or not invest in it? Those are unclear things. But you have the Holy Spirit and you have the word of God in tandem. Those two things can give you wisdom to be able to think clearly about things that the Bible is actually unclear about. So here's a question I'll leave with you. This is the last thing. I wanna help you walk in wisdom. And this is a question that has guided me through some of my life's biggest decision and I think can guide you through life's biggest decisions. When what is the right thing to do may not be laid out scripture and verse. In a lot of my past experiences, my present reality and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? In a lot of my past experiences, well, I know I have an addictive personality. I got that from a family member. I know the addiction runs in my family. A lot of my current reality, well, I'm at this party and I got, just got offered a drink. Well, maybe I would seem like I fit in a little bit better, but would I really be like ostracized and made fun of if I didn't drink it? Probably not. In my future hopes and dreams. Well, I want to be known as a man where at any given moment, people could put any scene of my life up on a screen and I wouldn't be ashamed of it. I want to be the type of man when somebody calls me and they say, hey, we need to talk. I don't go, oh crap, what did they learn? I want to be that type of man. When somebody says, hey, I want to talk, I'm going, okay, cool. What do we want to talk about? Because I know my conscience is clear. So in light of my past experiences, this current reality and my future hopes and dreams, no thanks, man. I'm good. I'll have a water. No thanks. I'm good. And you got a million different other opportunities. I mean, it could be your job. It could be where you work. It could be who you marry. You got to ask all three of these questions. These, this is the, God, the wisdom guide for all of these things in life. And some of you need to ask this question right now about, in a lot of my past experiences, in a lot of my current reality, like where life is right now, and a lot of my future hopes and dreams, what do I need to do with Jesus? Who do I need to let him be for me? How do I need to get out of this darkness that I've been walking in and to walk in light, wisdom, and love? And as you receive communion, I pray you ask yourself this question. Ask it, we're gonna leave it on the screen through our time of communion. Ask yourself this question. Jesus, in light of what's happened in the past, in light of what's happening right now, and in light of what I'm hoping happens in the future, what is the wise thing for me to do this week? Is it to take my smartphone to Verizon and get a dumb phone? Because why would I wait till tomorrow to resist a temptation that I can eliminate today? Is it me telling the boss that, hey, here's my two weeks notice? Is it me pouring whatever's in my fridge down the drain? I, what is it for you? And know that those are steps of sacrificial love to walk in light. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, move in the lives of your people. Move in the minds of your people. Allow us to think your thoughts and to surrender to your will. 
As we commune with you today, Jesus, we thank you for your body broken and poured out for us. Your blood, blood-drenched cross that reminds us of the lengths you were willing to go to love us. Your broken body that reminds us that it's only by you that we can be whole, that we can be made who we truly can be in you. So draw us out of our sin, out of our shame, into a place of peace, into a place of love. I pray today specifically for the person who is struggling with rising up one more time. They fall in seven. And Jesus, help them stand up eight. In your name, amen.